Welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Pastor Brian DeYoung. This is Lectio Continua, Acts, Episode 1. Today we're beginning a new endeavor by venturing into the world of podcasting. This is admittedly a multi-purpose adventure with several different goals in mind. First of all, we want to promote the Reformed practice of Lectio Continua preaching, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But I'm also hoping to learn on the job by actually doing a podcast with the hopes of launching another podcast in the future. That other podcast would be devoted to the history of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But before I'm ready to take on that project, I feel I need to get my feet wet with something a little more modest. And I trust that you'll bear with me as I try to figure all of this out. So maybe you're wondering what Lectio Continua actually means. And if it sounds to you like Latin, that's because it is Latin. It's Latin for continuous reading. This is an approach to reading the scriptures that is continuous and ongoing. You start with chapter 1, verse 1, and you read sequentially until you're ready to stop. Then next time, you pick up where you left off, and you read the next section, and so it goes. Now, in preaching, this basically means that you preach through books of the Bible sequentially, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, until you finish the book. This approach has a storied past in Reformed Christianity. Hughes Oliphant Olds, writing in a periodical called Reformed Worship, describes the history as follows. Almost 500 years ago in the city of Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli, inspired by the preaching of the early church fathers Augustine and John Chrysostom, preached through the Gospel of Matthew. Reformer John Calvin enthusiastically adopted Zwingli's Lectio Continua approach in preaching. In fact, during his long ministry in Geneva, Calvin followed this ancient liturgical practice preaching through most of the Bible. Now, if you're familiar with Calvin's commentaries, you can see the value of his approach, because Calvin's commentaries are really just edited transcripts of the sermons that Calvin preached on various books of the Bible. Lectio Continua is somewhat different from what is sometimes called Lectio Semi-Continua, where you skip certain passages in the sequence given in Scripture. And it's also quite different from Lectio Selecta, which chooses only certain passages here and there as suits the judgment of the preacher. During my 14 years of ministry at Grace OPC in Sheboygan, I have preached through Matthew, John, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ecclesiastes, Exodus, Zechariah, Judges, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, and Revelation. I'm currently preaching through Acts during our morning worship services. And before I came to Sheboygan, I served other churches and worked through other books of the Bible, including Genesis, Luke, and 1 Peter. 
So I've been doing this for a good long while now, and I have a certain level of experience with this approach to preaching. So what are some of the benefits from Lectio Continua preaching? Well, first, there is a certain predictability for both preacher and congregation. We all know that next week we will take up the next passage in the book that we're studying. There are no surprises for the congregation on Sunday morning, nor are there anguished hours of indecision as the nervous preacher searches desperately for something to preach on Sunday. The second benefit is that it forces all of us to deal with all of Scripture, even those difficult passages. Any honest pastor will admit that there are some sections of Scripture that he'd rather not preach on. For one reason or another, it's very tempting to leapfrog over those hard texts and to stay on familiar ground that is easy to preach. Likewise, honest church members will agree that there are some passages of Scripture that are awkward to hear preached, passages that are commonly avoided for various reasons. But if every word of God is inspired by God, then it is useful and needful for our spiritual good. Lectio Continua makes us tackle those tough texts. Still another benefit is that we follow the flow of ideas that the Holy Spirit has laid down for us. After all, the Bible is not a random collection of unrelated truisms. Rather, the Holy Spirit expertly guided the authors of Scripture to lay down theological masterpieces. There is not a single wasted word or an unnecessary sentence in the whole of Scripture. It all fits together as the Holy Spirit wisely determined. We are thinking God's thoughts after him as we read along in our Bibles. Though its structure is not always clear and obvious to us, there is wisdom in how God has structured his word of truth, and Lectio Continua consciously depends on that flow of story and idea of principle and concept. Finally, I have seen over and over how the Holy Spirit uses this approach to preaching to deal very directly with the needs of a particular congregation and of individuals within that congregation, whether he is bringing comfort and hope or confronting and exposing sin as sin. He uses his word to do his work among his people. And since it is just the next passage in the chapter, there can be no suspicion that the pastor handpicked that passage to send a subtle message to someone or other in the congregation. I have often rejoiced when members of my congregation have said to me after the service, Why, pastor, how did you know that I needed to hear that? And my answer is, well, I didn't, but the Holy Spirit surely did. Well, enough of my intro blather for now. As part of this podcast, I will be importing audio from my actual preaching of the book of Acts. The first sermon, which you are about to hear, comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and is entitled, Introduction to Acts. In this sermon, I will connect back to the Gospel of Luke, 
I will introduce a new era and will let you know what to expect from the book of Acts. Enjoy. This morning we turn in the Old Testament to the prophet Joel, to the second chapter. This is on page 911 in our Pew Bible. I'll read verses 28 through 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now we turn to the book of Acts. This morning we are looking at the first three verses of chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Ask the Lord's blessing. Father, as we embark on this glorious book this morning, we do pray that your spirit would be with us not only today, but throughout the days and months and years to come as we consider this book and as we consider its implications for us as a congregation and for our families and each for each one of us individually. We pray that you would use this book powerfully among us and in us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is in a name? Why are names so important? These are questions that we don't often consider unless they are forced upon our attention. This morning we begin a book commonly called Acts. More specifically, it is the Acts of the Apostles. And yet that moniker did not appear until sometime around A.D. 180. Due to various controversies in the church in the centuries that followed, it was sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Apostles, the Acts of all the Apostles, and even Luke the Evangelist's Acts of the Holy Apostles. More recently, commentators have suggested that a better title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, 
since the Holy Spirit figures so prominently in this book. A few have even argued that since Luke's first book recorded what Jesus began to do and teach, that this second volume is what Jesus continued to do and teach after he ascended into heaven. So perhaps a better title still might be The Acts of the Ascended Christ. If you like a shorter title, you could opt for Luke, Volume 2. Now, these various titles for this book are more than amusing curiosities because they focus our attention on who is acting. Is it Jesus? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the apostles? Well, we would say yes, yes, and yes. These are the acts of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles. And the second and the third members of the Trinity are employing human instrumentality in Peter, James, John, and the rest of the Twelve, not to mention Paul, that apostle abnormally born. And we know that wherever the Son and the Spirit are at work, so is God the Father. So maybe a good title would be The Acts of the Triune God Through His Chosen Servants. As we begin exploring this book this morning, I want to first of all consider the gospel revisited. Then we're going to look at a new era. And then finally, what you can expect from the book of Acts. Occasionally in the ancient world, an author would publish a multi-volume work. And when he did so, the introduction to the first volume was the fullest. Subsequent volumes would briefly allude to that introductory statement in the first volume, and that's exactly what Luke does here. The first account I composed, Theophilus. Well, this points us back directly to the Gospel according to Luke, which was also dedicated to most excellent Theophilus. His name, Theophilus, means friend of God or something like that. While this could be a generic title for every Christian reader of Luke's works, it is more probably a specific individual. The name Theophilus was not unknown in the ancient world. So having someone known as a friend of God would be as common then as the name Theodore is today. Theodore means gift of God. So as to leave no doubt in any reader's mind, Luke also gives us the content of that first volume about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is not only accurate, but it's highly significant. Jesus' ministry contained both actions and teaching. We've seen that in the book of John. He said things, and he did things. This is what is sometimes called a word and deed ministry. The two aspects go together, and they serve one another. 
If it is only words with no deeds, then people understandably are left to wonder if there's anything anything of substance to this. Do these words intersect and apply to real life, they might ask. And I think that's a fair question. Many talkers can talk a good game, but they never produce anything of real substance. So show me by your actions that your words are more than mere words. But on the other hand, if it is only deeds and there are no words, then it's really difficult to determine the meaning of the deeds. So actions need interpretations, and interpretations come through words. Deeds alone remain unexplained, and that becomes a problem as well. Okay, I've seen the deed, but what does it mean? What, what's the point behind the deed? But when you get both of these together, Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds, then the words explain the deeds, and the deeds back up the words. And truth be told, Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds came together as a package. He spoke and he acted. He did both. Now this is really important for church officers. It's important for pastors. I I could tell Cheyenne Halbach, Cheyenne, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you as you have your baby, I hope things go well for you. And, And she would accept that. But if I go to her hospital room and visit her and the baby and pray with her and read scripture to her, I'm showing her that I care about you enough to come. I'm not just talking about care. I am caring for you. This is important for elders, too. Now, elders can go around talking all day about their concern for the welfare of the flock, but the elders have to talk to the flock, be with the flock, interact with them, be in their homes, which is one of the reasons we do our family visits, so that the elders can be in your home and care about you and and oversee you. And deacons as well have a word and deed ministry. As our deacons care for the physical needs of the congregation, they're also looking to the spiritual needs of the congregation. And so when the deacons take care of a particular case, they not only provide material resources, but they will often read the Bible and pray with the people that they are helping. And so this is real ministry. Words and deeds going together where the words are interpreting the deeds and the deeds are backing up the words. And this intersection is tremendously potent. And and when you get this combination working in a church like ours, it really has a powerful impact on people's lives. John Calvin understood this. In his commentary, he says, Here must we note 
that those which have only the bare knowledge of the history have not the gospel, unless the knowledge of the doctrine which maketh manifest the fruits of the acts of Christ be adjoined thereunto. For this is a holy knot which no man may dissolve. Therefore, whensoever mention is made of the doctrine of Christ, let us learn to adjoin thereunto his works as seals, whereby the truth thereof is established and confirmed and the effect declared. So Calvin is saying these things come together. There's a knot here, a Gordian knot that no man can untie. And you have to bring them together because these words and these deeds serve each other. And when you take the works and apply them to the words, when the deeds and the words are brought together, the deeds act as seals of the truth. And they establish and confirm the truth. And the words are declaring the effect of the deeds. And if you study anything of John Calvin's life and ministry in Geneva, you see this going on. This is the genius of Calvinism. John Calvin was a preacher who understood theology and wrote some of the most profound theology the church has ever seen. But you know what? John Calvin also helped to redesign the sewer system in Geneva. Why? Because the sewers were making people sick. When the plague came through, John Calvin was visiting people with the plague. Calvin was no armchair ivory tower theologian who just simply talked at people. He was a pastor who loved people both in his words and in his deeds. And we could talk for much longer about the various projects that Calvin had going during his time in Geneva. This wasn't just one thing for common consumption so he could be proven to actually be doing something. This was just his mode of life, a word and deed ministry. Well, moreover, in heightening this connection to his first volume, Luke is also subtly reinforcing his own approach to history, what might be called Luke's historiography. From the introductory verses in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, we see that this man compiled a careful account of all the things accomplished during Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke thoroughly investigated everything, he says, from the beginning. He interviewed the eyewitnesses, including the apostles themselves. And he did this in order to write out in consecutive order the exact truth of what happened during Jesus' life. And this was done so that Theophilus could have confidence in the things that he had been taught. And so Luke was a good, good historian. I think there is strong reason to believe that he even interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
he has details about the birth of Jesus that would most obviously come from Mary herself. And we know that Mary was alive and functioning in the church in those days. So Luke probably took his scroll and sat down and started asking questions and started making notes. And he just gathered and gathered information so that he could then line it all up and give an orderly chronological account of the flow of Jesus' life and ministry. Well, there's one other note that should be struck here. Luke did not do this in his own wisdom and power, but under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved Luke to do all this work and produce this volume. Acts is inspired history, and therefore it is infallible and inerrant history. It's kind of fashionable in the scholarly world to take pot shots at Luke as a historian. To kind of look down on him and say he was some kind of primitive. And to say his history is not really very great history. I would beg to differ. He is the only historian in the New Testament era that wrote inspired history. And for all of these moderns who have all of their ideas about what constitutes good history, none of them have ever written inspired history. And so it's not only a pot shot at Luke, it's a pot shot at the Holy Spirit. And I will take Luke writing by the the movement of the Holy Spirit over any historian, alive or dead. He is a superb historian. Well, in these three short verses, with an economy of words, Luke spans three eras or three chapters in redemptive history. And the first that he mentions is the earthly ministry of Jesus. All he began to do and teach. The second era is a transitional period. It's from the resurrection of Christ to his ascension. This is the period of 40 days, about six weeks. And the third era is only hinted at, and that is the post-ascension period that Luke is going to begin narrating for us. We have spent much time on that first era, the earthly ministry of Jesus culminating in his death and resurrection. And I trust we don't really need to revisit that one right now. The second era, the transitional period, is much more Luke's focus here, the post-resurrection transition. It's during those 40 days that Jesus Christ did some very significant things. First and most obviously, he presented himself alive after his suffering. We saw some of those appearances at the end of John's Gospel. Luke, in his Gospel, also records some of those. 
But perhaps the fullest record, though not exhaustive, comes from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so Jesus appeared to many, many eyewitnesses. And at one time, we don't know when this was, we don't know the circumstances, but Paul says there were 500 brethren together. And he appeared to that large gathering. And if anyone doubted Paul's veracity, some of those 500 were still alive. Most of them remained. And they could go ask them about it. Well, not only did he appear frequently, but he gave many convincing proofs. This would include offering his pierced hands and side to Thomas's inspection. It includes eating a piece of broiled fish in their presence. It includes telling Peter and the others where to catch the fish and cooking and eating a breakfast. He showed in very tangible, real ways that he was, in fact, alive. So it's not just the appearances. It's the appearances plus the proofs. And those proofs are compelling proofs. But Jesus was also active during this period in his speaking and teaching. He spoke of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This is a main emphasis of the resurrected Christ. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is invading the realm of earth. F.F. Bruce comments that Jesus brings the kingdom in. It drew near with the inception of his public ministry. His death and exaltation released it in power upon the earth. So Jesus has taken the throne and he has begun to reign and he is reigning from heaven over his kingdom. And that reign has continued for the last 2,000 years and it will continue until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. We do not believe that Jesus' kingdom, that his reign is some future event. We are living in the reign of Christ right now. Because he took up his throne when he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He has begun to rule. And he rules by his word and spirit over his church today. Jesus does not have to be physically present in order to rule. He doesn't have to have a throne in the physical city of Jerusalem. He reigns from heaven. And that reign is the reality of this world right now. But he also, by the Spirit, gave orders or commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
Calvin picks up on this in his commentary, and he says, this shows that Christ is very concerned to order his church, that he gives commands in how his church is to be arranged and how it is to be overseen. Jesus did not just simply say to the apostles, okay, boys, the ball's yours, run with it, do whatever you think is best. He gave them very clear instruction. He ordered them. He commanded them so that they would rule over his church as he wanted them to. He does use his apostles as his vice regents, but he doesn't give them authority to make up the rules. This is why we say that all church power is ministerial and declarative. And what we mean by that is that we are ministering God's word and we are ruling and governing as he has declared. Not as we think fit. Not as the majority of people would vote. But as Christ the King has commanded and ordered, that's how we rule the church. Which is why we are very careful to say, if it is not clearly commanded in Scripture, we are not going to press it on your conscience. And that has some real-time application right now in the calendar, because right now is that season called Lent. And Lent, as the Roman Catholic Church has styled it, is a period of kind of suffering and repentance where you're supposed to give up things, and it's all tied into the church calendar as the Roman Catholic Church has given it to the world. The question of Reformed people is this. Is Lent commanded in the Bible? Does Jesus want us to do Lent? Search your scriptures. It's not there. Nowhere is it there. And so you don't have to give up things. You don't have to go into this period of fake mourning. Why? Because we're governed by the Scriptures, not by church tradition, not by the rules that the Roman Catholic Church has handed down to us. We don't care what the popes have said because we're governed by our King through His Word. And Jesus gave orders to the apostles, and they were bound to obey his authority, just as we today are bound to obey what Christ has commanded us in his word. So this is really the final preparation he's giving to his disciples before his departure and the commencement of their apostolic ministries. He is preparing them with the finishing touches for the awesome responsibilities that will rest on their shoulders for the decades that would follow. Well, this leads us then to the third era, a new era. 
As Christ is about to ascend to heaven, as Pentecost is looming on the horizon, the Spirit is about to come with power upon the apostles and begin a mighty work of establishing and building the Christian church. I like how my friend Bebo Elkin puts it. With Pentecost, the Spirit is running wild in the church. This is the Spirit's hour, where He is going to come and build the church. The new covenant people of God are about to appear center stage on God's redemptive plan. And so Luke is giving us those early decades of the history of the Spirit's work in the church. What we will find in the book of Acts will span roughly three decades. By the end of the book, we are going to find Paul in Rome under house arrest. And that happened sometime around 62 AD. So we're going from the ascension to the point where the kingdom of God is spread even to the capital of the Roman Empire. So what can you expect from the book of Acts? What will we discover in these glorious pages? Let me close this morning by highlighting some of the more important themes and features of the book of Acts. This is stepping back and looking at the big picture. And the first is simply the story of the establishment of the Christian church. This book, more than any other book in the New Testament canon, is history. It is the narrative of God's unfolding plan for his people. I love narrative, and I love preaching narrative. Stories. Stories engage us. You know, truths, propositional ideas are important. We don't deny that. But you don't go to the movies to watch propositional ideas flashed across the screen. You go to watch stories. Because the human heart loves narrative, loves stories. And this is a story. And what a story. What a tremendous story. It is full of excitement. You have heroes. You have villains. You have escapes from prison. You have a king eaten by worms. You have angels. You have lawyers. You have governors. You've got shipwrecks. It is thrilling, thrilling stuff. This book also has much to say to us about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The history of God's church is inextricably intertwined with the history of missions. The roadmap to this book is really summed up in chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You want to outline the book of Acts? There it is. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. This book is really about missions. We're going to track on Paul's missionary journeys as the gospel spreads throughout the known world. 
We are going to see the planting of churches, the establishment of beachheads for the kingdom of God. And so if you love missions, and I know you love missions, you're going to love this book. Because the history of the church and the mission of the church are intertwined in a way we just simply cannot ignore. And if you want to have a really interesting conversation during the fellowship time, I would just go up to Dr. Wingard and say, what do you think about that? <laughs> I sense Brian would have a lot of interesting things to, to say about this. His life as a missionary intertwines with the history of God's people. That's a fascinating connection. And, you know, I'm afraid that too often missions is kind of set off to the side. It's like the, the tail pinned on the donkey. And I don't think missions is so extraneous to the church. The church is about missions. It is to be a missionary agency of spreading the glorious gospel to the, the nooks and crannies of the known world. And the church, when it fails to do its missionary duty, tends to stagnate. And the longer it stagnates, the more it rots from the inside out. A faithful church, a healthy church, is a missionary church. And, and missions not only serves to keep us healthy, but it extends and expands the kingdom of Christ. It, it's what we pray for every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a missionary prayer. It's a prayer for the extension, expansion of the kingdom that it would grow extensively and it would grow intensively. And that we would see the day come where the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's not going to happen just by osmosis. It's going to happen as the church obeys the Great Commission and brings Christ to the nations, which is exactly what the book of Acts is about. And I love, I love the, the confidence that the apostles have whether they're standing before the Sanhedrin or whether Paul is making his defense before a Roman governor, they have no fear. The gospel they proclaim, the Christ whom they serve, has captivated their hearts. They are compelled to spread this good news, and it turns the world upside down, which is what we need in our day. But that would take too long to explain. Though not everyone will admit this next one, the book of Acts also contains the emergence of Presbyterian church government. It is a Presbyterian book. Much of our Presbyterian church polity is traced right back to the book of Acts. So let me give you just one tantalizing example. Everywhere that the Apostle Paul went, he planted churches. And when he established those churches, he also appointed elders to serve and to rule over those new congregations. 
Well, how did he appoint elders? Did he just say, okay, here's a list and you guys are in charge? No. In chapter 14, it tells us that they appointed elders by a show of hands. That's what the word literally means, a show of hands. Raise your hand if you want Roger Arndt to be an elder in this church. That's basically, you're raising your hand, you're saying, yes, yes. So through the show of hands, the congregations elected elders to serve over them. That's how the apostles appointed the elders. So this isn't what the Roman Catholics will say, that the apostolic succession leads the hierarchy to appoint overseers. It's the congregations choosing their own representatives. That's Presbyterianism. And so as we go through this book, we're going to have an eye towards questions of church government. We're going to see the rudiments of Presbyterian polity coming out. Another oft-overlooked emphasis of the book of Acts is the apologetics of this book. Repeatedly, the apostles were called upon to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The most famous incident is Paul's speech in Athens at the Areopagus before the Greek philosophers. But that is not the only chapter that contains apologetical information. Peter engages in apologetics before the Sanhedrin, as does Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So we have history, we have missions, we have Presbyterianism, we have apologetics. And there's many, many more things we will also find. We'll find the powerful preaching of the gospel of Christ. We will see the ministries of mercy from the first deacons. We will witness the very first ecumenical council. We are going to watch martyrs suffer. We are going to observe miracles. We will see persecutions at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. And this is not even to mention the thorny issue of relations between Jew and Gentile. The book of Acts really has it all and more. This is not a shallow, simple book that just keeps repeating itself over and over again. It is so rich, so full, so multifaceted. It is going to shape our thinking and our living. But then finally, you should anticipate from this book, as you should from every book in the Bible, that God will bring you face to face with himself. We will encounter Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the pages of the book of Acts. And I think beyond everything else, this is the most exciting prospect of all. For this is the Word of God. And through His Word, He speaks to His people. And if you will listen, and if you will take it in, you will come face to face with your God. And through the pages of the book of Acts, your God will transform your life. 
Spiritual transformation is something which takes place slowly, quietly, often imperceptibly. But you know, you are not the same people you were when we started the book of John four and a half years ago. You're different. Because God was dealing with you through the book of John. And you're going to be different six years or seven years or eight years from now when we finish the book of Acts. It is a long book, by the way. Because God's going to deal with you. And shouldn't that be our prayer? Lord, as we go through this book, Lord, use it for my soul. Use it to shape me in the image of your Son. Use the book of Acts to confront the sins of my heart that drag me down and hold me back. Use this book to spur me towards holiness and godliness of life. So as we stand here at the threshold, make that your prayer. That God would work through this book to shape you, to mold you, to carry on His good work towards completion. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this book that we are just beginning as we wade into these first few verses of this first chapter, we do so with great expectation. Lord, do a work in us individually, in our marriages, in our family relations, in our congregation. Lord, work in our session and in our diaconate. Lord, do a good work through this book so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on this introductory episode of Lectio Continua. It's my hope that we can do one of these episodes each week. Thank you, and tell your friends.